0: You're between the ages of four and eight, you're excused at Kids Club. I must confess to you, I've not been feeling well most of the weekend, so I brought my Denver Broncos cup with me full of water um, to drink from. Normally, they give me a cup of water, it's not very big, so I brought a big one, and we won the world championship. So we have that going for us. Um, my dad and I have laughed this week. Going up Kansas City Royals and Denver Broncos fans, it's been a pretty good year for us sports-wise. You combine the bison, and lots of people are asking me to become a Vikings fan. Um, it will require a pretty sizable bribe, bribe for that to happen, so we can, we can talk about that. We are four weeks into a series in First Peter that we're calling Living in Hope. As we walk into 1 Peter, we recognize that Peter is writing to a group of people who are called the elect exiles. These are people whom the world is rejecting, and that are simultaneously being accepted by Jesus. And that's a reality we all walk in. That what we believe, what is our hope, that which we cling to, is rejected by the world, and yet we're simultaneously accepted by Jesus. This letter, as we lean into it, focuses on the challenge of living in a world that is not our home, rather living in hope. So how do we live in a world that rejects our faith and will more and more be rejecting those who claim a biblical faith? And the answer is a right understanding of hope. We've leaned into that. That's why Peter writes here is that what we need is a living hope. Hope. And in that, we've been reminded that the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the grave is at work in your life and in mine. The way that God the Father would raise His Son from the dead is at work in you, raising you from the dead. There is not a single part of your life that God can't entirely and completely resurrect through His Son. And so we're reminded that we do not serve a dead God, but a resurrected Jesus. And it's this resurrected Jesus that is our living hope because he's alive and he's active and he's moving. So we've been reminding you over and over that our God is not just moving in South America or in Africa or in far off places, but in fact our God is at work and moving here in our country In our city, in our church, and even in our houses. Our God is alive, active, and moving, and so we look to him to be our living hope as a source from which we would derive our life. So when Peter writes this letter, as we've stated in previous weeks, he starts by writing a chapter of indicatives. Now, a couple months ago, I walked through this. I said the word And balance the terms indicatives and imperatives. And somebody asked me if I was an English teacher. I assure you, I know very little of grammar, but these words are important. When you come to an indicative, it's what the Bible says about you is true. Now, you got to lean into that a little bit because when the Bible says something about you is true, you either have to accept it as truth because God has said it's true about you, or you call God a liar. And that's not a really good spot for any of us. And, and so you've got to wrestle into that reality that what God says about you, whether you believe it, whether you're experiencing it, whether that's what you want to think, hope, or believe, what God says about you is true. It declares who you are in Jesus Christ. So when Peter writes a chapter of indicatives, as he does in 1 Peter 1, It says who we are. It's an important facet of our faith. Because in this, the Bible says what is true about you. And that lays the foundation for us to live in hope. Because it says what's true about us, it becomes our truth. Otherwise, and this becomes important as we step into this book, as we leave the indicatives in chapter 1 into the imperatives of chapter 2, and it says something like in First Peter 2, 1, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, we might come to that and think our faith is just a moral code. In fact, there are plenty of people out there who posture that our faith is just a list of right or wrongs. Do this, don't do that. And it's not. Now, without question, our faith has a moral code, but it's not a moral code. It, it has one. It isn't a list of rules. It isn't about performance. We don't have to prove our merit. Rather, it's imperatives that flow from the indicatives, or rather, put more simply, it's a more of a true reflection of who you are. So when Peter will write in chapter 2, we'll get there. So put away all malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He doesn't just tell you about these characteristics and say, do right, don't do wrong. Check these boxes. He says, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. An accurate reflection of him looks this way. And so we started a couple weeks back. And this is where we are in First Peter. We're creeping along. I assure you our pace will pick up. But Peter writes in verse 3, and I want to read it for you because it's going to set the stage for the text we'll be in this morning. First Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through him you have not seen him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And in this section... What Peter says to us is that our God is to be worshipped. Our God is to be worshipped because he's given us a living hope provided by his great mercy and through the resurrection of his son Jesus. We've been born again by believing in him. And that we have a living hope. And that living hope becomes the basis for our joy. A joy that is inexpressible and unexplainable and in other places inexhaustible so that we can endure trials and hardships as believers in Jesus Christ. And as we walk through those, God will be found to be even more worthy, even more faithful, and we will worship him until the day he returns because he has saved us. And this salvation that we have... The salvation that we have through Jesus Christ is actually a pretty incredible feat that is unique in the scriptures. And so when Peter continues in verses 10 to 12 to talk about the greatness of our salvation, he steps into it and uses some word pictures. He explains it in a way that's kind of, to be frank with you, challenging. So as we open up this text This morning, I want to and need to acknowledge to you that this is a difficult text, not in its application, but to be frank, it's the kind of text that you might read through, shrug your shoulders and think, at least a Southerner would think, bless my heart, I hope this edifies somehow. But I promise you, as we lean into this text, you will find that there's something here, and it's in fact something really good. Something we need to lean into and something, in fact, God is praiseworthy for. We just wanted to give you the acknowledgement so that when you see it, you won't think it's just you. You're not the only one who comes to Bible passages and looks at something and reads it and thinks, what does that even mean? It happens to all of us. So 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, which is our text this morning, Peter starts this way, saying, concerning this salvation... He's taking us back to the salvation that as we trust in the living hope, live in joy, the outcome of our faith, Peter says, is the salvation of our souls. And he digs in deep on that to show us the uniqueness of salvation. So this is what he says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See what I mean? challenging text. But let's follow me on this. Let's step into it more. And this is what Peter writes. He says the prophets, and by this he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, those who would go meet with God, hear God speak, and then pass it on to the people, that these prophets wrote about the grace that you would see in Jesus Christ. They wrote about it, and they searched for it, and they'd studied it, And they dug into it, and they didn't know it. That which you have, they longed for. And it becomes a pretty impressive feat when you dig into that. To consider the fact that these Old Testament prophets longed for what you have. When you consider the reality that Moses and Ezekiel only saw Jesus transfigured and yet you can meet with him anytime you want there's a huge distinction there. When you consider the reality that Moses had to walk up on a hill and meet with God only to see his back and yet you have open access to the throne room of God this salvation given to you through Jesus Christ is unique. It's unique. And the Old Testament prophets, these writers of old, didn't see it. They didn't understand it. And in fact, in Matthew 13, 17, Jesus says this, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. To hear what you hear and did not Hear it, and this part of this is part of the heart of what Peter is writing. That they longed to see it, and they longed to hear what you've heard, and they did not hear it or see it. And in fact, if you follow the New Testament, you find the prophets didn't really understand what God was going to do through His Son. That's why Paul writes this in Ephesians three, Ephesians three four through six. It says, when you read this, you could perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, that Christ is a mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and as has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirits. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You lean into that, and Paul's saying that the Old Testament writers didn't understand what God was going to do through his son. Now, without question, you can see that God had a desire to bless Gentiles. But what you don't see is that God would take a Gentile and so thoroughly bless him as to make him a child and a co-heir of eternity. See, you walk in this reality in the scripture to know that you're a child of God. Because that's what you are. It's what the Bible affirms about you if you've believed in the Son. Now you may not believe it. You may not walk in it. You may not trust in it. But the Bible says it's true of you. The Old Testament prophets didn't have that understanding. They had to go meet with God. They had to perform certain sacrifices and certain timings in order that they might be considered pure only to have that purity, that cleanliness, wiped away. And that's not the reality that you and I walk in, in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets wrote about a a new covenant. They wrote about grace. But they did not understand what God was going to do through Jesus. And this helps to explain Why, when you open the Bible and you read the Gospels, the Pharisees and so many of the religious people missed Jesus. And you find even the disciples misunderstood him as he continued on. What Peter writes is that they didn't understand this dual nature of glory and suffering. You you would find reading through the Old Testament that they anticipated that the Messiah would be glorious. And you can find in other places that they, they thought he would suffer. But the fact that he'd be glorified through his suffering, they didn't see it. They didn't see it coming. That's why they expected him to be the king and not crucified. They misunderstood him. In Luke 24, 27, after Jesus is resurrected, he sits down with his disciples on a beach eating fish i've always said if there's a moment in the bible that you could step into this would be mine one confident jesus can cook some mean fish (laughs) confident of that but two in luke 24 27 it says this and beginning with moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself and isn't that an awesome time Jesus sits down and walks them through the Old Testament and says, Yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. me." Jesus shows them how the Old Testament flowed together to anticipate who he would be and who he was. So in 1 Peter 1, when Peter says that our God is praiseworthy, for our hope and for our joy, he also says that God is praiseworthy for the greatness of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. He's praiseworthy for the greatness of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And the salvation is unique, not just as you compare it to the outside world, See, as the outside world looks at this, there's a perspective in which if you don't know Jesus, you might look at God as a judge and think you've always got to measure up. You've always got to do the right things. You've got to hit your check marks. You've got to pass the test. And even if you don't acknowledge God, you're going to work through hoping all of your life will amount to a great bank account And a lot of toys. And a lot of other things that are meaningless. And yet our salvation is great amongst that in the world. Because it declares who we are. So we don't have to pursue that. We don't have to chase that. We don't have to define that. We're already defined by Jesus Christ. And so our salvation is great amongst the world. But friends, when you open up your Bible, lean into this fact also. That amongst God's people, throughout the history of time, you are amongst the most blessed. And we miss that. We miss that thoroughly. I remember as a college student saying and thinking repeatedly, boy, this would be so much easier if Jesus was here. Man, if I could just walk through this and Jesus was standing next to me, this would be so much simpler. And yet, do you know that Jesus said, it's better for you that I go? It's better for you that I go that you would trust in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because if I'm with Jesus, he's with me. He's not with the Romains. He's not with the Waverns or the Vortaburgens. He's with me. And yet the experience that we have now with the Holy Spirit is He's equally equally with all of us in a way that's unique and powerful and awesome. That God the Father could be weeping with you in your closet while celebrating with somebody else elsewhere. All of which stepping into an intimate relationship with you Where you can know God in this personal way that was missed in the Old Testament. And to be fair is missed thoroughly amongst people in our culture who don't consider the fact that you could know God personally or intimately, but just walk through the motions. See, we have a unique and incredible salvation that's unique not just to the world, but it's Unique considering how God has operated with people through time. And you may have never stopped to consider it. You may have never leaned in to think about it that way. But the relationship that you have to God the Father through His Son is unique in the Bible. The forgiveness of sins that you're granted through the Son is unique in the Bible. And because of him, because of Jesus, more than Ezekiel, more than Daniel, more than Jeremiah, more than any other prophet you could think of, Nahum, Jonah, we can get deep, Obadiah, you have greater access to God through Jesus than they did. You have more intimacy with God than they did. And you know a forgiveness of sins that they could not even conceive of. Which is to say this. The Old Testament writers would be jealous of your faith. They would look upon you as being in a more favorable position than them. Because you don't have to go to a certain place to pray. And you don't have to have ceremonies that make you clean before God. And you don't have to make regular sacrifices, killing sheep, goats, and birds, and other things to be presentable to Him. Because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was worth more than sheeps and goats. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ... The, your relationship with God the Father was restored forever. That you could walk with Him in a permanent way so that you're constantly offered the throne room of grace. That you could meet with Him when you're in the neck deep in sin. And you could meet with Him when you're celebrating your great victories. You could meet with Him when you're mourning your deep Hurts in a way they could not. And according to Peter, it's not just the prophets. It's not just the Old Testament writers who would feel that way. Look at the last line of our text. It says, things into which angels long to look. And don't miss that either. Things into which angels long to look. The salvation we have in Jesus Christ is so great. And it's so unique that angels long to look at it. Now process that for a moment. That there are angels in eternity wanting to watch you be saved. Wanting to watch you live out a redemptive relationship with God the Father that they don't know. The angels live with some expectancy. Man, God, what are you going to do with these people? That's what it says here. And we miss the fact that angels don't know redemption. And they don't know salvation. Hebrews 1 and 2 puts the supremacy of Jesus Christ above the angels. But also in that section, you find the place of man a little less than the angels, but far greater in God's administration. That through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, it says that Jesus will bring many sons to glory, and that includes you and me. So this redemptive work worked out into your life. None of the Old Testament writers look at you and say, wow, how favorable the angels are. Look at it, too, longing to see what God's going to do in you, through you, and by his grace. <clears throat> this section of First Peter is a challenge at first reading. <clears throat> but when you dig into it, it brings about the uniqueness of your salvation. And it pushes it to the forefront. That you might see in a way that's important that Peter's writing to these elect exiles who might think, being in a far-off land, thinking through the fact that this world is not my home, living in the rejection of the world and people, that God might choose them. They might feel like the least of God's people. And what Peter wants to write to them is our God is worthy to be worshipped. Because not only has he caused you to be born again by believing in his Son, He's given you a joy. I need like a spit cup or something. (laughs) Did I lose it? Oh, I'm back. Thank you. He gives you a joy through which we can endure the trials that we're caused to live through as we trust in Him. And He's given you a salvation that is so incredible and worthy that you're amongst his most chosen people throughout his administration. You're amongst his most chosen people. So you're not at a disadvantaged place. You're an incredibly advantaged one. So that when you walk with God through Jesus Christ, the salvation you have is incredible. And it allows us to walk with this hope and joy as we walk in the world Friends, as Peter writes, our God is worthy of worship for giving us a living hope through his death and resurrection, for giving us a joy that springs to hope and providing a salvation through his son, Jesus, that is beyond the relationship of any of the Old Testament writers, beyond that of the angels. So we worship God for who he is and for what he's accomplished on our behalf through his son. Jesus Christ, let me pray. (laughs) Great God in heaven, I'm so tempted to live out my faith from my perspective, to consider where I'm at in relationship to you, to wonder, God, if you even love me, if you even know that I'm here, And yet when I lean into your word, I lean into your truth. And I hear that what you say about me, and I believe it's true because you said so, that you would call us your children. Father, you have caused us to be born again into a living hope. So that as we approach this world, we are not hopeless, but we have a living hope that is alive and active and moving. God, thank you for that. There's no part of our lives, God, that you can't absolutely resurrect, and that you've given us a great joy that we could live out of that, that our identity is tied to your son and not our accomplishments. We can have great peace in that, and that you've given us a salvation that is so incredible. God, you're faithful and trustworthy and good. And why you called us and made us yours, I'll never understand. But God, I thank you that you did, that we could know salvation through your son, Jesus. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.